Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. Hear these words from the book that we love. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Oop, that's copied twice. That's all right. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Guide us, O Lord, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. On April 26, 1986, following a routine safety test, the core of Reactor 4 in the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in northern Ukraine melted down. In explosions, they ruptured this core, destroying the building in which it was housed. There was an open-air fire that occurred because of this that burned for nine days, releasing radioactive contamination all over the USSR, all over Western Europe. And it's considered to be the worst nuclear disaster in history. And in the days and months and even years following the Chernobyl disaster, at least 30 people died from direct injuries and from radiation. Over 100,000 people were evacuated from this 1,000 square mile area around the plant, most notably from this city of Pripyat. In the area, which is now known as the Chernobyl Exclusion Zone, is this deserted, desolate, foreign, odd-looking, overgrown region 
where there are abandoned factories and schools and houses. There's an amusement park and all these buildings, all these homes that have just been sitting there for decades and, and, and vegetation has begun to take them all over. It's, it's too radioactive for people to live safely and it was just abandoned. And there are several documentaries about the Chernobyl disaster. If you Google it, uh, I'm sure you've heard about it before, but if you Google it and go online, tons of pictures, uh, and they are pretty haunting to see. You see empty school buildings with desks flipped over and papers still on the ground that have been there for 40 years. It's really bizarre, uh, the, the, the pictures and haunting. And the long-term impact to humans and the environment from the disaster is unknown. In some ways, it's difficult to calculate. There have been pine forests in the region that have turned reddish-brown and just died. Contamination to drinking water. There have been uh, reports of animals that were born with deformities. Humans suffering from acute radiation sickness, thyroid cancer. And that's just some of the physical things. There's also social impacts, economic impacts as well. Hundreds of billions of dollars, and that's billions with a B. Billions, hundreds of billions of dollars have been and are still being spent on Chernobyl-related costs. It's interesting, as I was reading about this a little bit, this week on, in, on April, or in April 2006, Mikhail Gorbachev wrote, the nuclear meltdown at Chernobyl 20 years ago this month was perhaps the real cause of the collapse of the Soviet Union. So the economic impact was, was huge. And the accident at Chernobyl was horrible by all stretches of the imagination. But the repercussions of the Chernobyl accident have actually been worse. They've been worse. See, two weeks ago, Jim preached on the first half of Genesis chapter three, where we saw Adam and Eve, our first parents. We see their sin. They listen to the lies of the serpent and they disobey God. God's command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is an event that is commonly referred to as the fall, capital F, the fall. And in our text this morning, we are now introduced here to the long-term side effects, to the aftermath, to the fallout of their decision, which Dutch theologian Herman Bavink says unleashed a flood of misery on the human race. See, because of Adam and Eve's disobedience, the original goodness of creation, which we talked about back in the fall when we talked about Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, that original goodness where God said, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good, that goodness is now spoiled and paradise is lost. There's a theologian, a uh, Canadian theologian named Albert Walters. In one of his books, he says, as dirty water contaminates a clean pond, so the poisonous effects of the fall have fouled every aspect of creation. And so much like the Chernobyl disaster, this fallout is not just localized, it is far-reaching. It goes far beyond Adam and Eve, far beyond the garden. Adam and Eve's sin had negative consequences, not just for themselves, but for every human being that would ever live and for the entire world, for the entire cosmos. If you aren't a follower of Jesus this morning, or maybe you're someone who's skeptical about Christianity, skeptical about religion, maybe skeptical about the scriptures, especially potentially of these first few chapters of the book of Genesis, which are uh, difficult and complicated in different ways, I encourage you to ponder what we're going to talk about here this morning and ponder this truth, this idea of the fallout for just a moment. Don't dismiss it lightly. 
really all you need to do is look around. Look around. Look inside yourself. Look to the motivations, the intentions of your own heart, the thoughts in your own head. Look around to the world outside of you, to the pain and the hurt and the injustice that seem to pervade our world. It's kind of obvious, or at least it seems obvious, that the world is not as it should be. Something is broken. Something is fallen. You know, just this past week as we were beginning to gear up for the Super Bowl next Sunday, former Dolphins head coach Brian Flores filed a lawsuit against the NFL with accusations of what appear to be systematic racism in the hiring practices in the league. And in another way, again, this past week, the world is gathering in Beijing, turning our attention uh, to this competition of winter sports, but yet there's these allegations of China's human rights violations against minority people groups that, are, that tarnish and make complicated the celebration of unity that the Olympics is supposed to be. Things just aren't what they should be. We feel that. We sense that. Moreover, in the last couple of weeks, I've had a lot of conversations with a handful of people, people in my own small group, people that are leaders here at our church, even people outside of our church, and have come to the conclusion that we're all feeling sort of similar right now. Tell me if this sounds familiar. You're tired. You're lacking reserves. You dread that unavoidable feeling of Groundhog Day again tomorrow because Monday versus Thursday versus Saturday all sort of feel the same right now. Especially if you have kids. There's just that Groundhog Day of like the kids' schedules. Parenting is hard. Work is frustrating. Marriages are struggling. The highs in life don't feel as high as they used to. But then also on the flip side, the lows somehow feel lower maybe than they used to before COVID. And I know for a lot of people as well, we just don't have a whole lot to look forward to right now because we don't know what the future holds. We're just kind of taking it one day at a time. Is this the way it's supposed to be? Is this the way that life was created? Was this God's intention? Is this the way things are on purpose? And the answer is no. These are symptoms of the fall. This is the fallout from the sin of our first parents. The bliss and beauty of the garden has been corrupted. It's been distorted. And so, now that I've depressed you this morning with my introduction, let's dive into this passage a little bit. Let's see what God has to say to us this morning. There is bad news. We're going to start there. There is bad news in this passage, but also there are some glimmers of hope. So from here, I'm going to talk in two parts. First, Speeches of judgment, and second, splashes of grace. Speeches of judgment and splashes of grace. So speeches of judgment first. You may have noticed as we read the passage together a few minutes ago that there are three speeches of God here, to the serpent, and then to the woman, and then to the man. And in these speeches, he communicates the penalty and the consequences for Adam and Eve's sin. And we'll look briefly at each real quick in order. Verses 14 and 15, we see God's speech to the servant. I'm sorry, the serpent. The serpent, for the serpent, the penalty is humiliation. If you were here uh, two weeks ago when Jim preached on the first part of Genesis chapter 3, you might remember that verse 1 of Genesis chapter 3 says that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. That the serpent was intelligent. The serpent was clever 
But because the serpent used his intelligence, used his cleverness, he misused his shrewdness, you might say, the results for him are being destined to eat dust all the days of your life, verse 14 says. And to be clear, this is not an explanation for why snakes don't have legs. Like some people are like, oh, did serpents used to have legs? Like were they like Komodo dragons? Like, I don't know. I don't think so. That's not really the point. It's not about why do serpents not have legs. Derek Kidner, who's a commentator, he says this about God's curse to the serpent and that idea of, he says that the curse gives crawling, quote, a new significance, not a new existence. So the serpent probably already crawled, but now through this curse, crawling is an image of humiliation. It's an image of a symbol of disgrace. See, the serpent goes from being highly acclaimed, being well thought of in the animal kingdom, intelligent, you know, crafty, uh, you know, all that, now to being lowly, to being despised, and to being cursed. The most cursed out of all the animals of creation. So the serpent's penalty is humiliation. His consequence is defeat by the woman's offspring. And we're going to come back to that in a few minutes. So I'm going to skip this part. We'll come back. But, his, but he, God, the consequence for his sin also is defeat. Verse 16, we see God's speech to Eve. For the woman, the penalty is painful labor and childbirth, to which all the moms in the room say, ugh, right? Procreation, we talked about this again in the fall when we looked at Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. Procreation is one of God's creation ordinances. It's one of those commands and actions that humans do that God has asked, invited us to do, called us to do, that expresses what it means to be human, what it means to be an image bearer, one who is created in the image of God. In Genesis 1.28, God tells Adam and Eve, Be fruitful and multiply. But here, Eve's calling to do that, Eve's calling to motherhood is frustrated. The act of giving birth is one of both physical and emotional pain. There's a commentator named Matthew Henry that writes this about this passage. He says, The sorrows of childbearing are here multiplied. Not only the travailing throes, but the indispositions before, and for its sorrow is from conception. And the nursing toils and vexations after, and after all, if the children prove wicked and foolish, they are more than ever the heaviness of her that bore them. And so we see that the pain, the labor, the toil of childbirth is even more than physical. It's also mental and emotional. And for the woman, the consequence of her sin is defeat in her conflict with her husband. See, the first ver half of verse 16, pretty straightforward. Okay, labor, pain, childbirth, makes sense. Pretty easy to read, pretty easy to comprehend. The second half of the verse is a little bit more confusing. Verse 16 at, at the end. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. What is this desire? And what is the nature of this ruling by man? And to be sure, there is disagreement among biblical scholars uh, on these questions. If you want to learn more about this, tune into the podcast this week. I'm sure Jim will want to dialogue more about this, and, and we'll chat a little bit more about what some of those other opinions are with biblical scholars. But I believe that the best and the most obvious understanding of this text and of this phrase is that Eve's desire is one of control, and that Adam's ruling is one of improper force. So this is not a benevolent ruling, but actually one that is improper. 
See, in the very next passage, the same Hebrew word desire is used to describe sin's control or sin's desire. So, that, so sin, this, this, this idea of going against God, against his commands, is personified. And sin's desire to control Cain is the same word, the desire for. And Cain, and you'll, we'll hear more about this in a couple of weeks, was contemplating murdering his brother. So not good. And that God tells him, tells Cain that he must subdue or master that sin. So those are the same Hebrew words that are used there. In the New English translation, we, have, we use the ESV translation. It's what's printed in your worship folder, what we typically read from. The New English translation, which I also really like, uh, paraphrases it this way. It's a little bit more clear. Speaking to Eve, you will want to control your husband, but he will dominate you. And I think that's a good rendering. I think that strikes to the context, uh, fits the context, and fits the tone of the passage. And so what we're seeing here is that marriage, another of God's creation ordinances, something that was designed to be good, God brought Adam to Eve in the garden. He performed the first wedding ceremony. This was something that was supposed to be a blessing, is now going to also be marred by conflict and by power struggle. And so sin not only disrupts fellowship vertically with God, but it also disrupts fellowship horizontally between a husband and a wife, between a man and a woman. The fall brings alienation from others, including, most notably, and maybe most sadly, our spouses. Those that we spend the most amount of time with, those we're the closest to, we seem to hurt the most. And before moving on, I should say really quickly, and again, we'll talk about this probably more on the podcast this week, uh, that I don't believe this text teaches an establishment here of male headship uh, or that there is a necessary hierarchy based on gender as a result of the fall. There are some commentators who argue, hey, this is where God is instituting this male headship, male hierarchy. I, I don't think that's a good reading of the text. Everything that we encounter in these speeches that we're talking about, right? We've already talked about procreation. We've talked about marriage. Everything that we see here was already established. It was already created, and God is now frustrating those things. Those things are being spoiled. So I don't think there's something being established here. I don't think that's a good reading of the text. To be sure, there's a conversation about male headship and hierarchy. Where does that come from? Is it from the garden? Is it not from the garden? That's for another time. But I want you to see that the main point here of this curse, of the second half of the curse, is that both the woman's desire for control and the man's subsequent ruling over her are both portrayed negatively. They're both portrayed here as bad. It's part of the curse. The dynamics of the marriage relationship are spoiled because of sin. There's power struggle now. Verses 17 through 19, God's speech to Adam, the third speech. For man, the penalty is painful labor and agriculture. See, in the garden, before the fall, when everything was good and perfect, God graciously provided an abundance of food for Adam and Eve. There were fruit trees all over the garden. They could eat of whatever they wanted except for the one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But now the ground is no longer going to cooperate. Because they have sinned by eating the forbidden fruit, they must labor and toil to eat. It's not just a joy to eat, to provide food, to put food on the dinner table, but it's toil, it's labor. The same word, actually, it's used there also of, of Eve, that laboring uh, and childbearing. It's the same word. It's important to note here also that work itself is not a curse. So God does not curse work 
or, or the work is not, again, established as a result of the fall. Work is cursed, but work itself is not the curse. Our first parents had a job to do in the garden to c- continue God's creative work. I actually preached on that back in the fall. We talked about uh, the cultural mandate, it's sometimes called, this work that was to be done where God tells them in uh, Genesis 1:28, subdue the earth and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Before sin entered the world, God gives his creatures, he gives Adam and Eve a divine vocation. He gives them a holy calling to rule over his creation, over the terrestrial world. But again, now, again, this ordinance, this thing that was created in the garden for good, just like procreation, just like marriage, is also now frustrated. It's also now tarnished. And it's important to see as well that Adam is not cursed. So work is not a result of the curse. Adam is also not cursed directly. It's the ground that's cursed, right? That's what God says there in in verse 17. The ground is cursed. And so work is made more difficult, but the environment itself is also spoiled. Verse 18, thorns and thistles it shall grow. So when Jim preached on the first part of this, he talked about that there are actually four levels of alienation that we see. In this chapter, there's alienation from God, there's alienation from ourselves, there's alienation from others, which was hinted at again with the marriage piece and and, and the speech to Eve. But then here we see the fourth and final layer of that alienation, and that's alienation from our world, alienation from nature. It also is subject to the curse. And the New Testament says that creation was subjected to futility and is in the bondage of decay. And also for Adam, we see that the consequence of his sin is defeat and his conflict with the ground. Adam is subjected to hard labor all the days of his life, the text says, until he returns to the dust from which he was created. And in this, we see that God's Sabbath command, this last ordinance that we talked about at the beginning of of Genesis chapter 2, is also now frustrated. Work is more difficult, yes, but also there will be no rest. The Sabbath command to rest, to enjoy, is now tarnished. It's going to be difficult to do that. In this past week, I heard someone put it this way, which I think is really good. You will fight with dirt all of your life, and you will be rewarded for your toil by being buried under six feet of dirt. Super encouraging, isn't it? But it's it's a good summary. So we see three speeches here in which all that was created in the garden, all that God said was good, these ordinances that he gives, these tasks, these things that he blesses Adam and Eve, our first parents with, all of these things are spoiled in these speeches. Procreation, marriage, the cultural mandate or work, and the Sabbath, all made more difficult because of Adam and Eve's disobedience. Let's exhale. But praise be to God, that's not the end of the story. That's not all that's in this passage. It's not the end of the sermon either. But we see here, in contrast to this trifecta of judgment, that there is also three glimpses of hope. The results of sin certainly are dark. There's no denying that. But like color that's been splattered on a black canvas, they're here are splashes of color. There is grace interwoven. Even as we learn and have to grapple with 
the results of sin, there is a remedy for sin, sin that is also weaved in. Glimmers of light that tell us that paradise can be regained. So I want to mention quickly here these three splashes of grace, and then we'll wrap up. First of all, God protects them from eternal spiritual death. We haven't looked yet at the very end of this passage since we read it, but look uh, back there in those final verses that God protects them. He drives them out of the garden so that they will not live forever in this state of alienation. Verse 22, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So there's this other tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but there's also this tree of life. And if they eat for that, it seems, they would be stuck. They would be trapped in this part of alienation, in this for all eternity. And so it may seem strange that banishment from paradise, that a forced exile would be something that's gracious, but it is. They've been punished with spiritual death, this alienation, but they have not yet tasted physical death. And if they ate from that tree, they would be doomed for eternity. And so God, by removing them from the garden, he blocks the way to the tree of life with a cherubim, it says. This is an angelic guardian figure that comes in other portions of Scripture. You see them even uh, when there's descriptions of the tabernacle and the temple. There are cherubim woven on the curtains that are inside that, that guard the way to God. So it's this angelic guardian figure that's blocking the way to the tree of life. But by doing this, God actually leaves open the possibility for reconciliation. And so God protects them from eternal spiritual death. He also provides them with a covering of animal skins. At the, at the end of Jim's sermon a couple of weeks ago, in chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve. They attempt to hide their nakedness by doing what? They find some fig leaves and they sew them together, little loincloths. They try to hide themselves. But here we see that God provides them with garments of skin, verse 21. But there's a lot more going on here than just better clothing. This isn't just about a better garment. This is the very first time in the history of the world that an animal is sacrificed to cover shame and guilt for humanity's disobedience. And for the Old Testament people of God, for Israel, if they were to read this passage, there is no way that they wouldn't have seen here the symbolism. That there is a foreshadowing here of the Old Testament sacrificial system that man is, and woman are made right with God by blood. It's through the death of a substitute, the death of someone or something else who pays the penalty for sin. The author of the book of Hebrews puts it this way in chapter 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so while our first parents are here listening, maybe they've just finished listening to these three speeches. They're still dealing with the embarrassment of their disobedience. They're still grappling with the consequences of their sin. God gives them a picture of redemption. He said, this is how I'm going to bring you back. There's a picture there of redemption. And finally, God also promises them, Adam and Eve, victory through the offspring of the woman. This is the part we skipped a little bit back in the speech of, to, to Eve. Or I'm sorry, in the speech to the serpent. There he says that a descendant of the woman will one day defeat 
Satan, will one day defeat the seed of the serpent. And theologians, since the very first couple centuries of the church go all the way back 200s, 300s, they have agreed and understood this verse to be a promise and a clear reference to the gospel. And they call it the Proto-Evangelium, the first telling of the good news. Proto-first, Evangelium, good news. The Proto-Evangelium. And in this third and final splash of grace, we encounter for the very first time in scriptures the person of reconciliation. So there was a promise and a picture, and now we see a person. The seed of the woman, the promised Messiah, who the scriptures later reveal is Jesus of Nazareth. See, the serpent played a key role in bringing down Adam and Eve, but now the offspring of Eve, their descendant, is the one who will actually get the last laugh. The text says that Satan will strike his heel, delivering a crippling blow to the Messiah, but that Jesus, in turn, will strike his head and it will be a fatal blow. And the Apostle Paul, he picks up on this idea in the New Testament. And he compares and contrasts Adam and Jesus in a beautiful way in Romans chapter 5. Listen to these words. This is Romans 5, 18 to 19. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. What is he saying there? He's saying that Jesus is a better Adam. He's the second Adam. He's a greater Adam. He reverses all that Adam and Eve together screwed up. And it's interesting to note as well that Satan, he tempts our first parents at the very beginning of the scriptures at the very beginning of the existence of humanity in the garden. But he also appears again in the New Testament in Matthew, and he tempts Jesus at the beginning of his ministry in the desert. And see, we fell in Adam because of his disobedience, but we stand in Jesus, who in Matthew, he resists the temptation of the serpent. And he perfectly obeys the will of the Father and is crucified, died, buried, and rose again for us. The first Adam, what does he do? He points his finger at Eve. He points his finger at his wife and says, she made me do it. He tries to escape the punishment for sin by blaming someone else. But the second Adam, he points the finger at himself. He didn't do anything, but he points the finger at himself and he willingly endures the penalty for sin. The actions of the first Adam result in paradise being lost, but the actions of the second Adam result in paradise being restored. There's a famous uh, preacher and early church father named St. John uh, Chrysostom, who's uh, a really interesting figure. Chrysostom means golden mouth, so he was famous for his preaching. He was in the fourth century uh, became the Bishop of Constantinople. Uh, his, a lot of his homilies, a lot of his sermons are still out there and available. You can read them. They're, they're really interesting. Um, and in one of them, he paints a really beautiful picture here, picking up on these ideas from the garden of Jesus' victory in contrast to our first parents. Here's what he says. Have you seen the splendid deeds of the cross? Shall I tell you something still more marvelous? Learn in what way the victory was gained. And you will be even more astonished. For by the very means by which the devil has conquered, by these Christ conquered him. And taking up the weapons with which he had fought, he defeated him. Listen to how it was done. 
a virgin, a tree, and a death were the symbols of our defeat. The virgin was Eve. The tree was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The death was Adam's penalty. But behold again, a virgin and a tree and a death. Those symbols of defeat became the symbols of his victory. For in the place of Eve, there is Mary. In the place of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of the cross. And in the place of the death of Adam, the death of Christ. I love that. So there's three speeches of judgment, but there's also three splashes of grace. So what do we do? What are we, how are we to take this? What are we supposed to walk out of here with? How should we respond? There's a great story in uh, Numbers chapter 21 where the people of Israel are wandering in the wilderness and they once again become impatient with God. They begin to grumble, complain. We want to go back to Egypt. This is terrible. And in response, God sends out poisonous snakes, which does not sound fun, among them. And many people in uh, the nation of Israel, they're bitten by these snakes and they die. And the people pretty quickly say, oh, we must have done something bad. And they recognize their error. They repent. They turn to God. They say, we're sorry. We'll never do it again. Please, please fix this. And God tells Moses to fashion a bronze serpent, an image of one of these snakes, to, to, to put it on a pole and, and to hold it up. And when people in Israel, when they look to that, when they've been bitten, they would live. The antidote to the venom of the serpent. And for us, the response, the calling is the same. The antidote, the venom of the serpent, the solution to the fallout of the fall is to look on the one who was also lifted up. Jesus hung on a tree and became a curse for us that we might escape the curse. And so, again, whether you're a follower of Jesus here this morning or you're not, my exhortation to both groups or to whatever group you find yourself in this morning spiritually is the same. Look to Jesus. Look to him. Look to him, the one who crushes the head of the serpent. Look to him, the one who clothes us with garments of righteousness. Look to him, the one who reopens to us the presence of God. Look to him, the one who will end our exile from the garden. Look to him, the one who will restore the goodness of creation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem on the same podcast feed where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.